Good afternoon. It's Friday the 14th of April 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And we're also joined by Vanessa Bailey via video link from Damascus. So uh, let's get straight on. And uh, well, here is here it is, Arcturus. Uh, this, of course, is the brightest, the fourth brightest star in the northern constellation of uh, Bootes. And well, what can we say about it? If you turn your telescope towards it tonight, you might just see this. Uh, because, of course, uh, we have a new variant, Patrick. This is not just a star, Mike. This is also one of the names of a Greek god. Well, well, apparently it is, uh, it is the, well, the, the constellation is the herdsman and uh, the, uh, the Arcturus itself is to do with a bear, apparently. But there you go. What can we say? The guardian of the bear. That's the, correct. The yes. guardian of the bear. Um, or to keep, keeps the bear away. It has something to do with Russia. Quite possibly. Possibly. Possibly, so yeah. This is great. My COVID has been upgraded from just Greek letters in the alphabet to actual gods. So this is a big, big move for the variants, and we're here to... But we're going to say that the independent takes the biscuit, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. So here's the, the language on this is unbelievable. So the coverage on this thing is great. Uh, Arcturus, what do we know about the new COVID variant here? And this is what they're saying. This is a subvariant, one of 600 spawned from Omicron. How about that? Brilliant. Oh, I didn't realize that the uh, virus could give birth to other viruses because they said it's not an organism. Anyway, it's 600 spawned from Omicron from those nucleotide particles. So, so far, but seemingly no more lethal than the others. That's a nice caveat there. Has been detected in 22 countries, including the UK and the US, and has made landfall apparently months ago. In, in the UK, and the reason they can say this is because uh, they've extrapolated some old PCR tests uh, from wastewater or something like that, apparently. So totally reliable, nothing to worry about. They've got it all under control, the public health teams. <laughs> We're looking forward to it, right? So so anyway, anyway, let's get on to more serious issues. And uh, well, the arrest of... Uh, Jack Jack Texera, is that how we pronounce his name, Patrick? Yeah. And the question is, is he the leaker? Because it's it's quite fascinating. Uh, this young man, 21 years old, uh, arrested by the FBI. Let's have a look at the, the footage of his arrest. Uh, arrested by the FBI at his family home in uh, Dighton, uh, which is in rural Massachusetts. Uh, he, he apparently, by mainstream media, uh, reports anyway. It's the leader of the online chat group on Discord where the uh, where the leaks were uh, initially made. He's been charged with the unauthorized removal and transmission of classified information. He's going to appear later on today in a court in Boston. Um, so the question is, is he the leaker? Uh, he worked as an IT specialist uh, in the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts National Guard, apparently based at Otis Air National Guard Base in Western Cape Cod. Uh, he was uh, employed as, well, this role, Cyber Transport Systems. Uh, this is from the National Guard website. So let's look at the uh, minimum education that you require in order to get this job. You need a high school diploma, uh, GED with 15 college credits, or GED. What, do you know what GED stands for? Uh, that'll be sort of an equivalent of a high school degree, right. um, which you can get during high school or after. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then when they... Uh, for qualifications, they're looking for knowledge of electronic and network principles. They're looking for normal color vision. They're looking for possession of a state driver's license. They're looking for experience in installation of voice, data, and video network infrastructure. 
uh, completion of uh, a current single scope background investigation. Uh, we'll come on to that in a second. Completion of seven and a half weeks of basic military training and must be between the ages of 17 and 39. So what they seem to be saying is that uh, on completion of a single scope uh, background investigation, a 17-year-old, uh, if we look at what that is, uh, potentially gets access to confidential secret or top secret clearance. A 17-year-old, in this case, a 21-year-old, but anybody can apply from the age of 17. That, Patrick seems like quite an incredible situation. I will explain a little bit later as to how this has arisen, but just to, to take the point here, um, these people are children, really, and they're not uh, necessarily um, able to make a decision about what's in their own best interests, shall we say, or perhaps they're open to manipulation. Theoretically, yeah, all that's possible, Mike. So you're looking at a 21-year-old, uh, a, a rank of captain, which is quite a young age to have a captain's rank, but apparently if you graduate from college, you can attain a captain's rank as a, as a college graduate. So, you know, he is young at 21, uh, an airman with the, uh, uh, with the Air Force Reserve, National uh, Reserve for the state of Massachusetts. Okay, so he, it's an interesting profile. He's very young, as you said. Um, and what's other, the other interesting part is he's been profiled as a kind of right winger, a Second Amendment enthusiast, a gun lover, um, Orthodox Christian, apparently, or, right. or linked to Orthodox Christianity or something like that, posting racist memes on the Discord server. So they've built out a profile, this guy. The only thing missing is that he's an incel or something like that. So it's got everything. Uh, the, the implication is that this is a MAGA, potential MAGA supporter, um, and believe that the military and the government are run by elite pedophiles, uh, according to various reports. So isn't it amazing that in 24 hours, we know every single fact about this young man, uh, just like that, there's going to be civil and also military trials. So it, will he? So, have, and, and so what, is there an attempt here to almost attach him to sort of QAnon and Pizzagate type yeah, stuff? Yeah, just right. a, a conspiracy theorist, this type of person, whatever. So can, can, is he going to get a fair trial in a, uh, a normal civil court or a criminal court uh, with the jury having seen all this uh, derogatory material about this guy? It's amazing how this gets out so quick, isn't it? Well, indeed. Case closed, jur judge, jury, and executioner. Move on. That's what they're telling us. Move on. It's all done. We've caught him. We know the motive. We've got a witness statement from an anonymous person on Discord. Uh, so yeah, nothing to see here, right? So while we're all focusing on the uh, on the young man himself, uh, of course, let's just remind ourselves about what was in the leaked documents themselves. That's right. So instead of focusing on Deep Throat, why don't we focus on Watergate itself? So let's look at just a quick review of these documents or what we know or what we think we know, Pentagon leaks, the contents, generally speaking, details of NATO's military support for Ukraine, battlefield assessments, intelligence efforts, weapons and ammunition stocks, uh, situation reports, analysis on other countries are included in there, among them Egypt, Israel, and also South Korea. Not everything in there is actionable intelligence. Some of it is just somebody's opinion within the intelligence community. However, here's an interesting one, Mike that Putin has cancer, that one's dropped in there. Well, I mean, this is a narrative that's been banging on through the Daily Mail and other trashy newspapers for two years now, really. Yeah, so that he's getting chemo treatment. So listen, we've included that in there, Mike, because there could be a lot of real intelligence in here. There could also be things that ended up in intelligence reports that don't really 
correspond to facts, but they're part of the uh, the leak, as it were. So it's a chance to get some of this stuff out and give it some sort of official uh, status. Uh, so, Vanessa, let's just look at one of these uh, stories and, and this one from the Washington, well, who's the source? The Washington Post uh, about Egypt uh, secretly planned to supply rockets to Russia, according to one of the documents. Yeah, and I mean, um, yet again, within the article itself, there is no uh, image of the document that they're referring to. This article, one, it's in the Washington Post, as you pointed out, very tongue-in-cheek, the bastion of uh, true reporting, of course. Again, said very um, sarcastically. Um, interesting, but again, it's, the, the trend these days seems to be for these rather questionable articles to be written by more than one journalist. And it, in my opinion, the more questionable it is, the more journalists that are attributed to it. So, so this article already has three journalists taking responsibility for what's written. And effectively what it's claiming is that within the uh, leaked documents was a secret document where Al-Sisi is agreeing to manufacture 40,000 rockets for Russia to uh, aid its war effort in Ukraine. Um, and, and shush, don't tell the US uh, that we're doing this because, you know, the US considers us one of their allies. I mean, this is, this is just Dr. Strangelove stuff. And um, now I've managed to, to speak to certain sources very quickly um, in Syria and Moscow, and both of them, I have to say, found this quite laughable, um, that Russia, one, would need 40,000 rockets from Egypt, and that Egypt would have um, proposed such an effort when it, it, it has effectively been very clear about nonviolent um, um, or rather non-intervention uh, in the conflict itself and pushing for peace. And of course, towards the end of the article, what do they start talking about? The fact that the US might dry up funding to Egypt. So for me, this is a clear beginning of the targeting of Egypt that I've been mentioning for the last few weeks and will probably come if this story gets legs and runs. It will come through sanctions, withdrawal of funding, and further economic pressure on a country that has already been pushed into um, massive poverty uh, by the West, particularly by the United States, and loans through the IMF, et cetera. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's, Patrick, move on with uh, some of the, the key revelations again. Well, well, back to the documents, and also we can point out here, and I know this has been mentioned before, um, these are photographs of printed out yes. documents. So this could have been a daily briefing could have been in the military, could have been CIA, could have been a gang of eight, Congress or Senate, uh, intelligence committees with clearance, uh, could have been National Security Council. So you're talking about there's hundreds of potential recipients here. So again, we'll come back to this forensic argument. Where did these documents actually originate? Did the leaker himself print them out? It's doubtful or it's possible that he didn't, um, that he got these images of prints from somewhere else. We don't know. And they even admit they don't know how he got these images. Right. And, and the other thing with the other potential explanation, of course, we should point out is all we know is that the documents appeared on a Discord server and then on 4chan uh, that, that they've apparently come on to the Discord server via his account. 
But of course, there's nothing to say his account wasn't hacked. So, I mean, there, there are multiple potential explanations for this other than he deliberately leaked the documents. Or that they weren't sent to him on another platform or right. a Tor server or something. So Thug Shaker Central was the name of the Discord group there. Gamers, ostensibly gamers. Uh, we'll get to the gamer talking point in a minute. Then it was ended up on Wow Mao and then 4chan mm. and then was disseminated to another platforms, including ended up on, on Twitter here. So, but here's the thing. Let's look at the key items, the big ticket items. All of this stuff is on there, but what's really important, there's a war going on. It's a historic proxy war, the biggest ever in modern history. So let's look at the big ticket items here. Here are the big ticket items and do make a mental note of what we're showing you here. Ukraine is unable to mount a spring offensive. Okay, this is after massive hype over the last couple of months that Bakhmut is is no longer important and wait for the big spring offensive from uh, Kiev, from the Ukrainian armed forces. That's been the talking point across all Western media, Western politicians. And there was no denial since this leak began, Mike, that there's not going to be a spring offensive. Then suddenly it appears in the leak. Okay, so that I find that to be the, the most compelling point. Secondly, surface-to-air missiles are being depleted in Ukraine. Uh, their SAM systems will be depleted by the, some date in middle or to early May. So a disaster. What does that mean? Need more money, potentially, right? Need more supplies. So again, the leak can uh, provide a number of uh, functions here politically. U.S. NATO special forces active in Ukraine, okay? Contingent of 100-plus. This is admitted, this exists in the leak. This is something most people have known, but has, it can't be said publicly by any politician without severe consequences or blowback. And also from NATO's reputational point of view, saying they're not in there, but, but yet they are in there, even though we know they're in there, and most journalists who are looking at this know they're in there. Um, it's, it's a way of putting it out in the public here. U.S. spying on the Zelensky government. Now, this is something that didn't shock the people in Kiev when they were asked about this mm -hmm. in the last uh, 72 hours. So again, no surprise here, but it's a way of putting this out in public. Uh, Zelensky orders attacks inside Russia. Again, this is a talking point that we have known and we'll show you, but uh, that has been denied or is, is something that's not reported at all in, in the Western mainstream media. So those are the big ticket items. So this is what I think, the, if this is a sanction leak, if this is a political leak, I think these are the important points that the leak, or the, the Pentagon or the CIA or the Republican Intelligence Committee or whoever leaked them would want to communicate these in order to somehow influence or allow the government to pivot, for instance. We'll come back to that in a minute. So here, the, this is the pre uh, sort of propaganda here. This is Michael Wise, uh, a total hack uh, from the Atlantic Council. Uh, former CNN, honorary member of the Levant Front terrorist group uh, in, in, in northern Syria. Here he is. So we'll just call this deep state narrative priming. And he's saying, U.S. officials said the investigation is in its early stages. N this is on April 10th. And those uh, they have not ruled out the possibility of pro-Russian elements uh, were behind the leak. So they had already primed this in the early days. It's the pros possibly the Russians. Okay. So anyway, job done. Next, Dmitry. Uh, Alperovich here, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, Joshua Schulte, reality winner, whoever this military docs on Discord leaker is, what is going on with our young people in this country that we feel it is okay to publicize highly sensitive 
in operational classified information. Uh, how did he know on the 9th that it was a young person? Well, interesting. Good point. Well spotted, Mike. <laughs> and do you know who Dmitry Alpovich is? Well, he just happens to be the former head of CrowdStrike. Uh, they're the ones that validated the alleged DNC hack uh, and that created the whole chain of events with WikiLeaks that ended up with the Roger Stone trial, which was thoroughly discredited after the fact. So the FBI outsourced the, the alleged DNC hack, which we many believe was a leak from the DNC. Mm -hmm. um, so he is the guy. That's Mr. CrowdStrike there. So he's an interesting character that he would weigh in. Now, so let, let's play a clip. What happened? Something extraordinary happened, Mike. Two nights ago, the mainstream media in the United States came together and agreed to no longer publish any of these documents without blurring them out. Uh, so let's watch this clip. It's unbelievable. National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin, live at the Pentagon this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Dana. The revelations have sent shockwaves through the Pentagon and the national security establishment, and sources tell me could be worse than the Edward Snowden leak because of the real-time effect on allies, their trust, and the war in Ukraine. Fox News has agreed, along with other news organizations, not to publish the leaked highly classified documents, which were discovered last week. Details about the scope and scale of the leak remain sparse. So the documents are already out in the public domain. The mainstream media have come together as a cartel and said, we're not going to show these on our platforms. How ridiculous is this? So they're, they're coordinating with government, mm -hmm. with the Biden administration, uh, and together. And so what is this? So even though it's in the public interest, the mainstream media have come together and made the unilateral decision that the public cannot see these documents. Okay. Isn't that incredible? Uh, they, I mean, the Daily Mail published three of them and then published no more. That's right. Uh, Your Active published one of them and then published no more. So this isn't just a U.S. decision. This is this is Western media. So this is the rapid response, response mechanism. mechanism. Yes. Right. Okay. So so there is there is some of the later uh, documents that were shown had the name apparently in details of individuals. But Mike, standard practices, they can just put redacted black lines over these, right, and still publish them. I don't see the problem. That's how they used to do it, right? But not anymore. Okay, so here's how they're presenting the documents now. So uh, props to Michael Tracy, who's doing some great work on this story uh, on Twitter here. He said, they're blurring out the documents on CNN and the New York Times. Just too dangerous. Your eyes will melt, and then you'll start speaking in Russian, says Michael Tracy here. And then he goes on, look at this. He said, laugh, LOL, at Bellingcat. Totally an independent journalism outfit, blurring out the images of the leaked documents like they're pornography or something. So they're putting the pixelated blurs over things all of a sudden instead of, of showing it. Of course, Bellingcat, totally independent, right? Right. So. so we're going to come on to Bellingcat in a bit more detail in a second. But first of all, the question is, why, uh, why would this 21-year-old have access to these documents? What? Why? Anyway, was let's, there a policy change? There, there was a policy change, and of course, it was 9/11 was the source of the policy change. 9/11 is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, so let's bring this organisation on screen. This is the Markle Tax Task Force on National Security, uh, and they're all about a safer America through information sharing. So they gave evidence to the 9/11 Commission, uh, and as a result of that evidence. Uh, things changed with respect to documents, uh, document classifications and the way that classified documents were shared. So uh, 10 years following, uh, in 2011, they gave 
uh, a report. Uh, Zoe Baird uh, Budinger is the uh, chairman, chairwoman, sorry. Uh, so she gave a statement uh, along with Jeffrey H. Smith to the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs uh, entitled 10 Years After 9-11, a status report on information sharing. And this is what they said. Uh, so in hindsight, it's clear that our failure to, disco to discover that the September 11th plot was in many ways a failure of information sharing and a failure to empower our best and brightest. This was in part because of the so-called wall between law enforcement and intelligence. Uh, over the last decade, this is up until 2011, our government has embarked on a, a virtual reorganization. Substantial progress has been made in shifting the need-to-know culture towards a need-to-share paradigm in which information flows more freely, enabling greater collaboration between federal, state, and local agencies, as well as the private sector. And of course, many of the uh, people working at, particularly in technology, in government in the US, as in the UK, are private sector uh, employees outsourced and so on. So um, the point is that uh, the last number I saw was something in the region of 1 million Americans now have access to uh, documents classified as top secret. And this is quite an incredible situation. Uh, and so, uh, and what the total, is the total amount of documents is in the hundreds of millions. Right. So, so the question is, what's the point of, of classification of documents anymore? Because, and the, and the other question, Patrick, that I have is, will this reverse that policy? Do you think? That's a good question. Or will this situation be used to rewrite that policy? Right. Very interesting question. I think we should keep our eyes on that space. But this is all assuming that he did have, uh, he was given access to these documents, which we actually don't know yet. Yep. Um, we knew he had, he's allegedly uh, had images of paper documents, which were then posted on his Discord server. That's what we know. But the mainstream media has ran all right ahead on this story. Uh, game, set, match, uh, everything's been solved already. They know the, the culprit, the, they have the motive, they have the witness. Okay, so Bellingcat, enter, so we'll just say under the uh, general heading of spooks to the rescue, uh, it's without Bellingcat that we couldn't have solved this uh, grand caper, uh, apparently, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So Bellingcat's Arik Toller uh, runs to the rescue. So working with the FBI, uh, being the tour guide, in the in the, uh, the the virtual maze, the Minotaur's maze of digital information. That's what Bellingcat's doing. Let's take a closer look at this. Eric Toller, that's uh, Elliot Higgins' right-hand man, uh, worked with the New York Times to uncover a trail of digital evidence that appeared to identify Jack Textier, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, as the leader of an online gaming chat room uh, where the U.S. intelligence documents were leaked. Now, let's just point out Bellingcat boasts that they recruit uh, their people, their workers, their investigators are gamers. They boast publicly. They work with gamers. They're in the gaming community. Bellingcat is part of or comes from the game, gaming community. So isn't it uh, just a coincidence that all of this popped up on a gamer Discord server and Bellingcat is there to be the chaperone for the mainstream media and the public on this, directing traffic effectively. Is that a coincidence? Is Bellingcat an independent uh, intelligence or open source investigator? I, I'm gonna ask Vanessa that in a minute, <laughs> but, but go ahead. So, so we'll just look at the coverage here. So this is the, look at the authors, Eric Toller, uh, Christian T, uh, Tribert, both the first two guys are Bellingcat. You've got Malachi Brown and 
names that you know we would peers. So again, as Vanessa think. was pointing out, here we've got what six six journalists on this article. So so the the mud doesn't stick to any of them. Is that is that the point? Well, in the first ones are, are Bellingcat, so they're not. Uh, well, they are, I guess they're journalists now. So the airmen who gave gamers a real taste of war. So this is the narrative which they're uh, putting together here. Uh, it was it was Air, Airman Texiera, a member of the. Massachusetts National Guard and his friends in the group who somehow, somehow obtained the classified documents. That's the most important part, and they haven't got that information yet. They've got the whole story, the whole kit and caboodle, but they don't have that important fact. So that's why we highlighted that, of course. That might come out in a month or two, and this story might be radically different when the rest of the facts eventually pour in. Okay, and posted them on the group, so you know, eventually spilled out into the open, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they go on here. So in the interviews, the Thug Shaker Central, that's the Discord group. Uh, so yeah, a place where young men and teenage boys could gather amid the isolation of the pandemic to bond over their love of guns, shared memes, sometimes racist ones, and play war-themed video games. So that's the story the public need to know. They profiled this. Again, the only thing missing is the incel. Okay, beginning in October, Airman Texier began sharing descriptions of classified information, eventually uploading hundreds of pages of documents, detailed battle maps, etc. His goal, group members say, was both to inform and impress. So they have the motive already. He just wanted to show off here. Here's one of the authors of this, this interesting uh, Christian Trebert. There, uh, formerly Bellingcat with Air Wars as well, now at the New York Times, forensic architecture. You'd see him during the Duma chemical weapons attacks. He was running point on that story as well. Interesting character uh, there. And so one of the uh, independent journalists, so to speak, uh, from Bellingcat here. And look at the, the end of this tweet here. He's saying, this is our big narrative piece. That's what he's calling the article, the big narrative piece. Uh, piece here. So just to highlight that for everybody, that's what it's all about. It's about the big narrative, and that's exactly what we've got. So that's what the public are meant to consume on this. Yes. Uh, Vanessa, just before we move on, what are your thoughts on Bellingcat? <laughs> on Bellingcat Independent? No, yeah. I mean, Bellingcat is effectively now um, a bona fide mouthpiece for security agencies, including, according to George Eliasson, a very good journalist on the ground in Ukraine since uh, before 2014, including for the SBU, the Ukrainian uh, Security Services. So, you know, with funding from NED, um, uh, links to Atlantic Council, Blah, blah, blah. Bellingcat is about as far from uh, independent as you can get. <laughs> yes. Well, we're going to have more on Bellingcat a little, a little later on when we talk about Elon Musk and perhaps what's going on around that, that BBC interview. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but let's, let's move on with this. So just back, back to the main point here. So in terms of those big ticket items, focus on this one, the top. Unable to mount a spring offensive. To me, this is the most important element of this whole set of leaks, because this allows a total policy pivot um, on behalf of the US and NATO. Okay, so what does this look like in terms of the, the, the last one too, uh, Zelensky orders attacks inside Russia. That basically precludes any peace negotiations, because as Russia is getting attacked inside their own border, 
they're looking at this as an existential security threat. So they're going to want to move further into Ukraine in order to prevent future attacks and to demilitarize Ukraine, as they said in their state of objectives at the beginning of this whole war. So by continuing to mount attacks inside Russia, it's guaranteeing that A, there's going to be no peace talks, and B, that Russia's going to go full bore uh, in the East. So isn't that such a coincidence here? And by the way, here are those attacks, drone attacks. This is June of 2022, TASS here, drone attacks in the Rostov region on oil refineries. So Ukrainian attacks here. So again, Zelensky is, here's another one, February 28th, Rostov again, oil refineries. So Russia's getting hit inside Russian territory. So, I mean, that's going to, again, that's going to preclude any peace negotiations there. So here's the policy pivot. Let's take a look at this. Okay, let's call this the pivot. So this is what comes out right after these leaks uh, were materializing this week. And what is this? U.S. doubts Ukraine's spring offensive will yield major territorial gains, newly uh, leaked documents show. So again, this is furthering the narrative. So Washington Post is managing the narrative on this by basically allowing for a soft off-ramp away from this spring offensive that was supposed to happen here. And it goes on, uh, and this is the Washington Post's big push uh, this morning here, U.S. gloominess on the war in Ukraine is now clear to see. They have a picture of an old elderly Ukrainian conscript in the trenches. They would never show that Mm -hmm. in U.S. media or Western media before that. But here it is. Isn't that a major shift in terms of the narrative? For months, U.S. officials have privately conveyed their concerns over the course of the war in Ukraine. This is the Washington Post lead, uh, one of their lead journalists saying this. Why hasn't he said this publicly? Now he's saying it after these leaks. So you can see this provides the off-ramp for the mainstream media and for Washington to now change pivot and, and to change policy on this. So, and here we go. In the public, they stress their enduring commitment to Kiev to resist Russia's brutal invasion vowed to support them as long as it takes, et cetera. But in more candid discussions uh, with reporters, directly with Ukrainians, they pointed out a tougher reality. A total military victory for Ukraine seems impossible. That's the key point. There's no military victory in Ukraine. Now the admissions come out. Because of the leaks, the press has opened up on their, their narrative and said, ah, maybe this isn't, there's not going to be a military victory in Ukraine. That's the whole point. Now they can talk about it because of the leaks. And this is the whole, this is how political leaks are designed. They're designed to be able to drift things into the public so that it's now acceptable to have that debate. Whereas if politicians introduced it, Mike, it wouldn't be. Okay, so here, and it's covering, here's another takeaway. This is one of the elephants in the room. Uh, Seymour Hersh, Zelensky and his team embezzled at least 400 million in US aid meant to pay for diesel fuel. Okay, the tip of the iceberg, according to Hirsch. Mm-hmm. It's Afghan level corruption in terms of aid. And so here's Hirsch, another elephant in the room. Uh, this is the cover up for the Nord Stream pipelines. So yeah, that's the sabotage for the Nord Stream pipelines, totally unaddressed, totally consequential. This could rock NATO at its core with Germany. Uh, politically. This is a big problem in Germany. Again, these are no-go areas uh, for the press. And then we've got a clip here. Now you see the pivot uh, that we didn't understand from uh, Speaker McCarthy. And let's play this clip. 
I think what's happening in Ukraine is an atrocity, and I think Ukraine, not just Ukraine, the world has to win there. What Russia has done is wrong. In a phrase that I use a blank check, I use that for anything. I look at every dollar uh, of taxpayers that we would use, but the one thing I know that in Ukraine we have to win because it also would uh, save Taiwan at the same time. Uh, are you reassured now, and should the Ukrainians, should President Zelensky be reassured that House Republicans are not going to stand in the way of more aid to Ukraine? You know, I traveled with uh, Kevin, uh, Speaker McCarthy, to Poland, Romania. He's always uh, believed that this, felt this way. Uh, when you're over here, Czech, when you talk to, and I've talked to the, the prime ministers and the presidents of Japan, you know, South Korea, Ta- Taiwan, uh, what's happening in Ukraine uh, will determine what happens uh, in Taiwan and the Pacific. So they've tied the outcome in Ukraine to China and Taiwan. So this is a repeat of the domino theory during the Cold War. Then this is what uh, mired the U.S. in Vietnam for 10 years, uh, was basically this domino theory. So instead of communism and capitalism, it's now autocracy versus democracy. And this is the new Cold War period. So they've committed to unlimited support for Ukraine, maybe not a military victory, Mike, but Eastern Europe is a new battleground. Unlimited amount of resources could go in there. How's that going to shape up? Let's take a look at this. Well, this is the Lend-Lease Act. And so, again, Michael Tracy points this out. This, is, this, is, this can be activated at any time uh, for the U.S. They don't need any uh, additional approval or anything like this. It's already been passed. And this would basically open the spigots for just endless amount of militarization of Eastern Europe here. And here's the caveat. An interesting caveat in here is that Ukraine is exempt from having to pay back any of this to the UK, US government. So that's with, that's a caveat there, and that's been highlighted there, uh, chapter six of the Lend-Lease, uh, the Leases of Defense Articles and Loan Authority, uh, which Michael Tracy's highlighted there. That's on his Twitter account. Very good research uh, by, by Michael Tracy on that here. So what does that lead to? If they're gonna pull out of Eastern Ukraine and, uh, and possibly withdraw there, or throw the Ukrainian army under the bus and totally expend them in there to create a new narrative, which is this. Uh, the case for a no-fly zone in Western Ukraine. Is that the last card that NATO can really pull militarily in Ukraine? And that's the question. It's a dangerous card to play. If, if it is the last card, that's a dangerous card to play. It's a dangerous card to play, but they've played it in Syria. So they've proven that they could squat in a, quote, hostile uh, uh, zone or whatever, and no one's going to touch them for fear that all hell would break loose. So, and then create a permanent frozen situation there for a long period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, buffer zone, DMZ, no fly, take your pick. And, and so what people in the West view this as a humanitarian effort. The idea of the no fly zone, as you can see in this image, it's, it's equivalent to stopping war. And this is because, you know, only the bad guys bomb civilians, not the United States and NATO. So that's the Im- implication in the minds of the West. So they, they could sell this very easily to the West. So if you want any more uh, information on this, I did a really good interview with Kim Iverson, uh, which is up on 21st Century Wire here. And we talked about the buildup of uh, air assets, troop assets along the Polish border with uh, Kaliningrad, Belarus, uh, and also Ukraine as well. 
So there is uh, a move to build up assets and troops along this area. So that could mean peacekeeping forces moving into Western Ukraine to squat uh, along with a potential no-fly zone. Is this NATO's final card? Because the military victory doesn't look like it's on the card. Short of nuclear, it seems like the final card. Well, who wants nuclear uh, annihilation? <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, we're just putting this out there as a potential possibility, and we think people should consider it. Okay, so uh, Vanessa, while all this is going on in Eastern Europe, of course, uh, in the Middle East, the, the pivot towards Russia and China seems to continue. Yeah, I mean, sort of extraordinary events happening at warp speed, uh, particularly in Syria. Syria seems to be the hub of these events from which uh, all these new cooperations and collaborations are radiating. So I'm going to just quickly go through what's happened this week, because even in one week, there's been a huge amount going on here. So first of all, as you pointed out, Mike, here is, uh, I would say, this is uh, Russia and Iran um, putting pressure uh, on uh, Syria and particularly on the president himself, President Bashar al-Assad, to follow through on meetings with President Erdogan. Of course, we're nearing elections in May, so uh, time is running out. And of course, um, as mentioned in this excellent article up at the cradle by Seda Karan, um, a Turkish-based uh, journalist and analyst. I recommend everybody read it because it doesn't only talk about the Syria issue, it talks about the entire uh, election issue uh, and the ramifications if Erdogan is elected or not um, in Turkey itself. And if we just go forward, Mike, we can see what she points out, which I totally agree with. She points out that the relations between um, Russia and Syria remain two of the thorniest issues for Ankara, particularly for Erdogan, um, because what this does is to place Turkey in the crosshairs of Washington's main foreign policy goals, which, of course, is the destabilization of Syria and regime change and annexation of Syrian territory, theft of resources, etc. Um, Turkey depends on Russia for energy and tourism. I'll, I'll come on to this uh, in the next slide also. While Russia needs Turkey to mitigate the impact of US sanctions by receiving uh, energy and agricultural resources and selling on into Europe. Uh, Erdogan signaled a willingness to reconcile with Assad last November, which was a complete about turn from his original policies from 2011 onwards. But the issue has not progressed much further, despite high-level meetings between their officials under Russian mediation. Turkish and Syrian defense ministers met in Moscow in December 2022, and respective deputy foreign ministers briefly met in, on the 3rd and 4th of April this year. Of course, the Syrian red line, as I've been saying for some time, is to demand the evacuation of all Turkish troops from Syrian soil before rapprochement talks progress, particularly between the two presidents. Yet in a meeting with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Shoigu, Turkish Defense Minister Halusi Akar still claimed that Turkey's military presence in Syria was for counterterrorism, peacekeeping and humanitarian aid. Does that sound familiar? Um, and of course, for Turkey, it's the Kurdish issue uh, which needs resolving. And then you have a battle between effectively two NATO member states, the US backing the Kurdish Contras and Turkey backing um, the terrorist Free Syrian Army Muslim Brotherhood groups in Syria. 
So coming on to other events, Saudi Arabia buys Russian oil in record volumes and sells it to the European market. Now, this is interesting because this means that Saudi Arabia has potential to replace Turkey um, as, as the hub for uh, Russian resources and the sale on into Europe to avoid uh, Western sanctions, particularly US-UK sanctions. So this is interesting. Is Saudi Arabia now vying to take the place of, of Turkey? And will that have an impact on uh, how Erdogan responds um, to President Assad? Um, interesting also that the West is doubling down on the chemical weapon narratives in Syria and following through on, on the corrupted uh, and fraudulent OPCWIT report um, which effectively maintains the blame on the Syrian government for the use of chemical weapons, despite um, the dissident OPCW inspectors' reports to the contrary. So China now um, is uh, basically taking the bull by the horns and demanding that the US clarifies and provides transparency on its military and biological activities at home and abroad. And bear in mind, of course, those biolabs are on the borders of China, Iran, and Russia not coincidentally. Um, today is Al-Quds Day, the last Friday uh, of uh, Ramadan, the um, Muslim festival. Um, <clears throat> uh, Al-Quds Day, meaning Jerusalem, started in Iran after the 1979 revolution, which deposed the Western-backed uh, Shah of Iran. And so here we see a very sort of belligerent stance being taken by the various resistance groups and the unification of resistance groups. So a delegation from the Islamic Jihad movement in Palestine, headed by Secretary General Ziad al-Nakhala, arrived in the Iraqi capital, Baghdad, in response to an official invitation to participate in the activities of the International Day of Jerusalem al-Quds. The visit will include meetings with high-level Iraqi officials and party leaders. Um, and in the occupied territories themselves, the various now uh, very much armed brigades, this is something that we've not really seen. Uh, we've seen it in Gaza, but we've not seen it to such an extent in the occupied territories. So here in Janine, um, the Al-Quds Brigades organize a march and a military parade in Janine camp on the occasion of Al-Quds Day. The Lion's Den Brigade in Nablus has also put out a warning of um, Israeli attacks on the camps in Janine and Nablus tonight and to prepare for those. So expect violent clashes uh, tonight. Um, Iranian delegation in Saudi Arabia to prepare for embassy reopening this incredible peace deal that was brokered by China, who's also obviously working on a peace deal in Ukraine. Um, in two working groups in Riyadh and Jeddah, the Iranian delegation will take the necessary measures to set up an embassy and a consulate general, as well as the permanent representative of the Islamic Republic of Iran to the organization of Islamic cooperation. So here we actually see um, Islamic unity across Sunni and Shia Islam, which is something, of course, the West has been weaponizing along sectarian lines to prevent um, pan-Arabism and to prevent unity between Arab nations. Iranian oil minister Javad Alji has traveled to Venezuela to discuss ways to strengthen energy relations between the two friendly nations, according to the Latin American country's foreign ministry. And of course, here in Damascus, the Venezuelan uh, ambassador and embassy is very active. 
this is one of the most extraordinary happenings uh, that is ongoing, of course, peace deal uh, still being um, brokered um, between uh, Yemen and Saudi Arabia with Oman uh, taking part as a mediator. Here you have Yemeni President Mahdi al-Mahtat, um, head of the uh, coalition uh, National Salvation uh, Government, which actually comprises 38 political factions from within Yemen, so it's not uh, solely Ansrullah. Um, it, it represents a majority of the political uh, sectors in Yemen. Receives the Omani and Saudi delegations at the Republican Palace in Sana'a, Yemen. Next. <laughs> um, and in the last few days, Foreign Minister of Syria, uh, Faisal al-Maqdad, was in Jeddah also on a working visit at the invitation of his counterpart, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Fahan to hold talks on bilateral relations between the two countries. And of course, it's worth pointing out that Saudi Arabia was instrumental in the funding and the promotion of the regime change war waged against Syria since 2011. It stopped funding um, armed groups such as Jaish al-Islam, the army of Islam led by Zahra Nalush, who was killed in 2015, I think. Um, and uh, Sheikh Abdullah Mahaizani, who led one of the most brutal coalitions in Syria um, up until 2015, 2016. So the fact that, that this detente is going on is quite extraordinary. So what were the main points of the meeting? First of all, cooperation to ensure that a political solution is found in Syria that protects Syrian territorial integrity, security and stability and Arab identity. This is important. We talked about the unification and the re-emergence of pan-Arabism, and there you have it. Agreement on addressing humanitarian issues and facilitating the arrival of aid to reach all regions in Syria, not the Northwest pocket that the, the, the US, UK, and EU were focused on. Preparing the ground for the return of Syrian refugees to their regions, ending their suffering, and enabling safe return to their homeland. Increasing efforts to restore stability to Syria, Strengthening security, combating terrorism, and I've put in brackets that, that the irony is uh, very obvious there. Combating terrorism in all its forms and fostering cooperation in fighting drug smuggling and trafficking. Now, I've also put here no sanctions, just action, unlike the West, because the latest sanction, um, swath of sanctions against Syrian officials, is based on the alleged production of Captagon, despite the fact that the West was responsible for the importation of, of Captagon to the armed groups from 2011 onwards. Um, commitment to support of Syrian state institutions and civil society to ensure control on Syrian territory and to end the presence of armed militia and external intervention in Syrian affairs. Um, taking steps to achieve comprehensive political settlement of the crisis in Syria, bringing an end to all the repercussions of the conflict, including national reconciliation and amnesty, which means the reintegration of the Syrian national uh, armed groups as uh, the Syrian government has been doing since 2011. Returning Syria to the Arab community, including perhaps the Arab League and resuming its historic role in the Arab world. Both sides welcome the resumption of consular services and flights between both countries. And it's worth pointing out that today, Egypt also came out um, to pressure Turkey to withdraw uh, its military and its proxy armed groups from Syria. 
Also, uh, this week, Syria's rapprochement advances with Tunisia. Tunisia is uh, sending an ambassador and reopening its embassy uh, in Damascus, and Damascus is sending uh, an ambassador to Tunisia, and flights will uh, start again between the two countries. Now, how does Israel and the West um, view uh, these peaceful negotiations that are going on uh, for the benefit of the Syrian people? Of course, uh, the Times of Israel comes out with an article on the 9th of April uh, blaming Iran for constructing a new Middle East. Interesting use of language there, as the new Middle East was effectively the, the Israeli-backed vision of uh, a partitioned, weakened, destabilized Middle East, of course, uh, in, in collaboration with the U.S., um, and what's interesting in this article is that they are particularly worried about the fact that peace is now coming to Yemen because in Israel's view, this means that Yemen also can join the resistance and train its uh, missiles on uh, Israeli occupied, on, on occupied territories. Um, now, uh, also, kind of retrospectively, Israel has come up with the excuse for um, aggression against Syria in the last few weeks, which has escalated uh, on the basis that Iran has been transferring weapons into Syria under cover of earthquake aid flights. Now, of course, the irony and the projection within this statement is the fact that the US um, and the UK and the EU have for years been transferring weapons uh, into Syria to the armed groups under the pretext of humanitarian aid. And the U.S. always uh, on the warpath, never looking for peace. In fact, it's outraged by peace, sends its guided missile nuclear-powered submarine to the Middle East amid alleged Iran tensions. So the deployment came amid intelligence indicating multiple potential threats by Iran and its proxies in the region, and in the region would, of course, mean against Israel, among those threats was a potential maritime attack on Israeli-linked commercial tanker ships. Now, again, that's projection. The majority of those attacks have been carried out by Israel against Iranian ships. And I haven't found anything in Iranian media to suggest that Iran is intending such attacks. However, that's why um, this nuclear-powered submarine that has the potential of firing, I, I think it has 154 cruise missiles on board, um, Russia blasts the U.S. over treatment of Lavrov. Apparently, Washington has refused um, flight path for the foreign minister's plane um, to, uh, to New York so that he can attend U.N. events at the end of April. Um, Anatoly Antonov, the ambassador to Washington, said on Thursday he described the clearance delay as incomprehensible. The U.S. authorities have not yet sanctioned the arrival of the aircraft, he said. He added that Moscow expects the Americans to promptly grant the flight permission without any conditions or restrictions. So while all of these peace deals are being brokered in the Middle East, the West appears to be basically um, getting more and more frustrated and more and more demented in its policy. Yes, and, and rather a childish. <laughs> I mean, we're seeing this kind of thing, Patrick, much more often, the, the denying visas to, to get to, I mean, the United Nations is supposed to be an international gathering. You can't deny a visa to, to a diplomat, no matter 
under any circumstances, it seems to me. And Vladimir Putin is due to speak at the, uh, well, at the BRICS summit in South Africa. And now they're having to reconsider him traveling because of the uh, arrest warrant with the International Criminal Court. So that's the highest level of yes. sort of politicizing the international system in order to keep uh, countries from, you know, visiting each other, heads of state. What about the UN General Assembly? Is Well, the U.S. isn't a signatory to the ICC, but, you know, is that going to be a problem uh, going forward? Anyway, it's just, that's... It's nuts. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that summary, Vanessa. That's brilliant. And I want to add what Vanessa was uh, mentioned about Yemen there. You know, to see the Saudi Arabian uh, uh, representative meeting a representative from from Ansar Allah or the Houthis, as they call them in the West, in uh, Oman this past week, mm. that means that they're recognizing Sanaa as a legitimate government. And so this is the first step to really an end to this uh, eight-year war started by Barack Hussein Obama in March of uh, 2015. Yes. I think this is amazing from that point of view. It absolutely is. And of course, that war has had absolutely, you know, virtually no media coverage over the years. It's just continued uh, and uh, really no uh, observable uh, pushback from any media in the UK or anywhere in the West. No. So it's some good news this week. Absolutely. Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column's doing, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options for us to join us there. That'd be very much appreciated. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material on the various platforms, including ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, uh, a reminder that on Tuesday, uh, Brian's interview with Andrew Bridgen will be streamed out at 1 p.m. Tuesday, the 18th of April, in the usual places. So do uh, watch that if you possibly can. Please let everybody that you know, uh, know that that's taking place. uh, And uh, hopefully we'll get a large audience for that one. Uh, A reminder that uh, next on Sunday, the 23rd, uh, just over a week's time, uh, the virtual event, uh, AV event, Smart Cities and Surveillance Agenda taking place. Uh, It's a a live streamed event. We're helping them live stream that. uh, And that will in turn support the genuinely live physically live event uh, in November, AV13, uh, or uh, I believe it is. Um, so uh, so please uh, take part in that on Sunday week, if you possibly can. Uh, a reminder of the uh, London rally this Saturday in Trafalgar Square, the No to Ulez rally. Uh, anybody wants to take part in that, uh, turn up at Trafalgar Square at 12 to 3 p.m. on Saturday the 15th, uh, that's tomorrow. Uh, and Patrick, you're speaking uh, uh, the following Saturday in Trafalgar Square, uh, for the Not Our War event. Yeah, this is uh, going to be uh, not Niall McRae. He's a writer. You're probably familiar with his, his work. Anthony Weber, who's uh, mounted a petition of to stop uh, the war, basically, and defund it, stop NATO's, uh, Britain's participation in the Ukraine proxy war. Peter Ford, former uh, British ambassador to Syria. David Clues, I believe he's from the Unity News Network, and myself, so that's next Saturday, April 22nd. There's other speakers to be announced. So they're still waiting for a few more, but in Trafalgar Square, 12 p.m. and uh, should go for uh, probably about uh, two hours. So looking forward to that. That should be an interesting gathering. Okay, okay, super. So now earlier in the week, uh, the BBC interviewed uh, Elon Musk. Now we're gonna show a couple of clips from this. Uh, to set up the the main part, which is to to look at one or two of the organisations that were mentioned during this uh, this particular interview. But let's just uh, 
listen to the first clip of uh, Elon Musk. Free speech is meaningless unless you allow people uh, you don't like to say things you don't like. Otherwise, it's irrelevant. Um, and if at the point at which you lose uh, free speech, uh, it doesn't come back. I, th I think the issue some people have is that a lot of people were brought back. I mean, some people were brought back who uh, were previously banned for spreading things like uh, QAnon conspiracies. You have people like Andrew Tate who were brought back who were previously uh, banned for things like hate speech. Do you think you prioritize freedom of, of speech over misinformation and hate speech? Well, you know, who's to say that something is misinformation? Um, who is the arbiter of that? Is it the BBC? And you literally, literally asking me? Yes. Well, no. You, you, are, the, the you are the arbiter on Twitter because you own Twitter. Yes, I'm saying. Who, who is to say that one person's misinformation is another person's information? Um, the point at which you, you say that there is uh, this is misinformation. Like, who is but going you, but to decide that? You accept that misinformation that? can be dangerous, that it can cause yes. real-world harms, that it can potentially cause. Um, yeah. So the point I'm trying to make is that the BBC itself has, at times, published things that are false. Do you agree that that has occurred? I, 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 I'm quite sure the BBC have uh, said things before that turn out to not be true. Right. In, in its whatever it is, hundred-year history, I'm quite sure. Yes. Even if you aspire to be accurate, there are times when it will, you, you will not be. So, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's interesting exchange, and it'll be it's about to get more interesting, I think. Uh, well, it is uh, now. Let, let's look at the second clip then. I've spoken to people very recently who were involved in moderation, and they just say they just, there's not enough people to police this stuff, particularly around, um, particularly around hate speech um, in the company. Do, is that well, what hate that you speech are you talking about? I mean, you use Twitter. Right. Do you see a rise in hate speech? I mean, I, I, but just a personal anecdote. Like, what do you do? I don't. Personally, my uh, for you, I would see I get I get more of that kind of content. Yeah, personally. But I, I'm not going to talk to talk to the rest of for, for the rest of Twitter. So you see more hate speech personally. I would say I would see more hateful content in that in that content you don't like or or hateful. What do you mean to describe a hateful thing? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, just content that will solicit. A reaction, something that may include something that is slightly racist or slightly sexist, those kinds of those kinds of things. So you think if I'm, something is slightly sexist, it should be banned? There are many uh, organisations that say that that kind of information is on the rise. Now, whether whether it has on my feed or example. not, I mean, I, right? And Literally, can name something one. like the, the uh, Strategic Dialogue uh, Institute in the, U in the UK. They will say that. So they, look, people will say all sorts of nonsense. I'm literally asking for a right. single example, and you can't name one. Right, and as, as I already said, I don't use that feed. But let's, well, then how let, would you know? Let, that I don't you, think this is getting anywhere. You literally said you experienced more hateful content, and then couldn't name a single example. Right, and as I said, I that's absurd. I haven't, I haven't actually looked at that feed. I then would how would you know this hateful weeks. content? Because I'm saying that's what I saw a few weeks ago. I can't give you an exact example. Let's move on. And of course, at that point, he wants to move on. Uh, Vanessa, we're going to uh, talk about the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in a second, but but just what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's embarrassing. Is this the best the BBC has got, for heaven's sake? I mean, it, it's not. He's he's not a journalist. What is he? I mean, he was. I mean, it, it's not difficult 
to have this conversation with Elon Musk, right? I, but who is this guy? Well, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that shortly. Uh, but let's talk about the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which actually he didn't seem to know the name of because he called it the Strategic Dialogue Institute. But anyway, this is them. Uh, they have a website. Uh, and uh, well, what are their their top stories that they're focusing on at the moment? They've got a series on the July uh, on the January sixth, uh, coup, if you want, as they call it, quote insurrection, the insurrection. Right. Uh, then they're obviously talking about Elon Musk and uh, before and after uh, Twitter acquiring Twitter, uh, the Reichsberger movement. We've mentioned them in the past, uh, and uh, then the Russian invasion of Ukraine. These are their top uh, their top sort of subjects on their website. They're all about powering solutions to extremism, hate, and disinformation. Patrick, that's their sub headline there. Uh, so this is what they say about themselves. ISD partners with governments, cities, businesses, and communities working to deliver solutions at all levels of society to empower those that can really impact change. We are headquartered in London with a global footprint that includes teams in Washington, DC, Berlin, Amman, Nairobi, and Paris. Uh, they, they focus on these three areas. First of all, analysis. They say we combine sector-leading expertise and research in global extremist movements with an advanced digital analysis capability. With this, we identify and track online manipulation, disinformation, hate, and extremism in real time. Our digital analysis unit has built proprietary tools for delivering social science standards of data. Uh, this provides ISD and our partners with granular insights into the evolving actors, tactics, technologies, audiences uh, involved in proliferating hate, disinformation, and extremism online. So they are collecting bulk data. They're looking at who's spreading information which they consider disinformation, which they consider hate, or which they consider extremist. Uh, and then they're uh, using that analysis to inform everybody, really, that's, uh, that's on the official side of the narrative. So they're tracking dissident speech. So this is the same sort of canard uh, that, uh, you know, Kate Starbird at the University of Washington and all these academic working groups. Why do they have an office in Iman? Is it to tamp down pro-Palestinian uh, speech on, on Jordanian social media? I don't know. But it, it seems like they will always position themselves which would, with whatever the British government considers to be dissident or hateful or threatening. And that's it. Whatever NATO or the British government, that's where you'll see the Institute for Strategic Dialogue will be exactly aligned with that. Just like the Southern Poverty Law Center in, in the United States perform, and the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, performing pretty much the same function. But this one is a, more geopolitical, this, this institute. So analysis was their first one. Action is their second. So here we go. Uh, action, we design and deliver programs that empower cities, practitioners, and civil society around the world to mitigate hate, polarization, and disinformation. So now they're not uh, pushing analysis into governments. Now they're pushing action points into the city states, as we're seeing them built around the world, at least the Western world, uh, and into civil society, third sector organizations, NGOs, charities, and so on. Smart cities, Our strong, strong cities. cities network has delivered training to 5,000 practitioners, brackets, police officers, teachers, and youth workers around the world. A three-minute, so they've got a three-minute video on Training. it. Training. It sounds like common purpose. This is exactly what it is uh, of a type. Uh, crucially, we work to empower civil society, foster ne fostering networks of community influencers, 
So fostering networks of community influencers, just think about that, including the first and largest global network of former extremists, they claim, uh, that have credibility to reach hard to reach target audiences. We've trained over 32,000 activists and social influencers around the world. How many of them are on YouTube, for example? That would be my question. Good question. Right, and have pioneered first of their kind intervention models across several different online spaces, gaming, social media, all tech platforms. Gaming connections, once again, here, Patrick. Oof, the gamers, okay. yes. Right, so we're back to the gamers again. Nice. So that's their actions. Finally, policy. We formulate and advocate policy solutions and provide local authorities, central governments, and multilateral institutions with the data, expertise, and technical support to deliver evidence-based policy and programming. And Strong Cities Network is absolutely part and parcel of that. This organization is at the core of much of the propaganda that we're seeing. It's there to counter the so-called disinformation of any uh, anybody that's pushing uh, any kind of narrative or or information which would be counter to, to their policy agenda. Uh, and just to give one example, uh, because they work very, very closely with the BBC. So here's another example. UK registered media company, likely informationing, likely they say, information, la information laundering for Russia. So ISD's executive director teamed up with the BBC to look into Yala News, a UK registered media a company that appears to be spreading mirrored video versions of Russian state media propaganda stories. Now, this is uh, Yala News is pushing this out in uh, Arabic-speaking countries uh, on Facebook, via Facebook and other social media platforms. But again, we have this organization working very closely hand-in-hand -hand with the BBC to attempt to counter uh, what they're describing as information laundering for Russia. So again, we're accusing others of doing what they're doing because they're they're running the information laundering campaigns it seems so if any arabic uh, language media outlets happen to uh, have the same editorial uh, viewpoint as a russian media outlet uh, then they're mirroring russian disinformation right mirroring russian propaganda so this is completely politicized this is again uh, to dovetail with whatever the uh, the british nato or us uh, foreign policy uh, uh, is it the, of the day? That's all this is. They're providing support for in the information warfare space. Yes. Uh, next generation warfare. Uh, That's what this looks like. Uh, absolutely. Now they they uh, were uh, hand in hand with not only the BBC but also with the Integrity Initiative and the Institute for Statecraft, if you remember what that was, uh, which was pushing anti-Russian narratives, anti-Russian propaganda through the mainstream press and a whole host of other organisations. Uh, and uh, I believe it was the seventh leak of the information that was uh, lifted from the, the uh, uh, Integrity Initiative website included information about this organization, the Zinc Network. Um, and now, this was uh, the Zinc Network was set up a number of years ago. We'll just have a, a brief look at who their clients and partners are and were. Uh, I think this uh, particular screenshot is from their version of their website from 2020. Um, and so we've got the Home Office, Foreign Commonwealth Office, as it was then, Department for Education, Department of Health, Ministry of Justice. Then we've got USAID. Uh, and then we've got uh, Democracy Council. We've got the European Union in there. We've got the World Health Organization in there. We've got KPMG, the Rockefeller Foundation, King's College London, London School of Economics, NSPCC. A veritable rogues gallery, Mike. Australian government. Okay, all involved with the Zinc, the Zinc Network. But back in 2018, the Zinc Network attempted 
to set up uh, what was called the Expose Network. This was a massive network of NGOs. Uh, they, they produced this technical uh, proposal. Uh, and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue was part and parcel of this uh, network. And although they're not in the consortium partners list there, they were in a list of 40 or 50 organizations. It was going to be set up, uh, described as the Exposed Network. Uh, three directors were, were going to be set up for the Exposed Network. Chris Donnelly uh, from the Institute for Statecraft Integrity Initiative, uh, Emil Khan of uh, Chatham House, uh, and Lewis Brook of the Zinc Network. And it was going to get, or at least they were bidding from the Foreign Commonwealth Office, just under £10 million for the budget for this. Uh, Institute for Strategic Dialogue, absolutely in this little network at the time. Consortium Partners, Mike, who's that down in the uh, lower left-hand corner there? That... Indeed, if we just put that back on screen for a second, uh, Bellingcat. Bellingcat, oh, it's interesting. So that ties them in with the uh, Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And there's a, a few other interesting, the Digital Forensic Research Lab, DFR Labs, isn't that, wait, hold on, the Atlantic Council. It is. Isn't that interesting, a NATO think tank. So they're all in there, thick like thieves, aren't they? Okay, so, so the question, yes, so then the question is, what's this all about? Well, of course, uh, the problem with what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter at the moment, he's letting all kinds of rogues back on there, like 21Wire, for example. Oh, terrible right? people. Uh, terrible people like that. And so the problem is, that uh, the government is, in a sense, losing control of that particular organization. And why am I mentioning this? Well, of course, the online safety bill is going through House of Lords at the moment. It's still a committee stage. They've been trying to get this piece of legislation through the books for several years now. It's not making any progress. It hasn't made any progress. They've already had to drop the, uh, the legal but harmful clause from it. Uh, so what the British government has done instead is to try to move the censorship, the obligation to censor content back onto the social media companies through their terms and conditions. So what they're saying to the social media companies is, right, you've got to enforce your terms and conditions where you have them. And if you don't enforce them, you're going to be subject to massive fines and or jail time. That's what Germany is doing. Right. And yeah. that's what we're all doing. So it's pushing the obligation for the censorship back on the terms and conditions. And if Elon Musk is effectively ripping up his terms and conditions and saying, actually, you can talk about COVID, you can talk about vaccine injuries, you can talk about the, the war in Ukraine, which is what seems to be happening, then it's going to be very difficult for governments to uh, cause uh, Twitter to enforce terms and conditions that don't exist. Because they'll end up in court fighting over defining what is harmful or defining what is disinformation. And, you know, the, co the corporate uh, side is going to win every time, Mike, because they're not compelled to have to make new definitions for words or things like that. If it's not illegal, the state's going to have a hard time enforcing that. Right. So, so indeed. So um, we've got a third clip um, since we're talking about COVID uh, again. Let's just listen to what he said about and this a direct attack on the BBC and their coverage of COVID and vaccine injuries and so on. Well, COVID misinformation. You you changed the COVID misinformation. Has rules. BBC changed its COVID misinformation? The BBC does not set the rules on Twitter, so I'm asking you. No, I'm talking about the BBC's misinformation about COVID. I'm, I'm, I'm literally Has, asking you about, you changed the labels, the COVID misinformation labels. There used to be a policy, and then 
then disappeared. Why do that? Well, COVID is no longer an issue. Does the BBC hold itself at all responsible for misinformation regarding masking and side effects of vaccinations and not reporting on that at all? And what about the fact that the BBC was put under pressure by the British government to change its editorial policy? Are you aware of that? This is, a, this is not an interview about the BBC. Oh, so. you thought it wasn't? <laughs> well, that was, that was quite, a, quite a good comment at the end. You thought it wasn't? Well, so, totally exposed as a complete hack journalist, uh, James Clayton. I mean, he went in there well, to, let's bring him on screen. to set up a hit job and completely failed. Yes. So James Clayton is the BBC's North America tech reporter. I try to explain tech clearly and simply, he says on his Twitter uh, account based in San Francisco, formerly BBC Newsnight. So, you know, I, I don't know. Is this career ending for him? Is that is he, he lied during the interview. He lied about the all the extreme hate in his For You feed, and he couldn't name an example. So he, he was lying on camera to the richest guy in the world who owns Twitter and thinks he's going to sort of scurry away and get away with that. Yeah. This could, this could be a devastating career fail for James Clayton. But, Mike, but... But in the world of the BBC and the mainstream media, this may actually get you promotion, promoted, or even land you a job in charge of something like Ofcom. Okay, so actually, if he wants to, if, for the deep state, big, big career opportunities are waiting for James Clayton right now. He's proved that he can go into the lion's den and lie and get away with it and uh, have no shame whatsoever. I think, I think he's got a promising future. Vanessa. Um, wasn't Olivia Solon originally reporting from San Francisco on tech issues? Yep. I mean, this, maybe San Francisco is the new pool for, for uh, full guy journalists that are going to kind of impale themselves on um, various uh, narrative untruths from the BBC and The Guardian. That made me laugh because yes. I think she was. Well, indeed. So, uh, riding to the rescue then uh, of a potential failed career is Mariana Spring, of course. Uh, after Musk's interview with the BBC, a reminder of this panorama investigation I did. Uh, Twitter insiders told me under Musk's site is no longer able to protect users from trolling and other harm. Exclusive data and users' testament, testimony suggests hate is thriving. So, she's attempting to, to, to uh, 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 provide some foundations for a collapsing journalistic career, but uh, here she's also saying, uh, also a reminder of how when Musk tweeted about the investigation, it unleashed a torrent of abuse against me from trolls. Poor Mariana, there you go. It proved I'd reveal uh, what I'd revealed about the site struggling to protect users. More on being at the center of a Twitter troll storm there. So uh, there you go. So she, she's the British uh, equivalent of uh, Nina Jankovic. Yes. There, and she's expecting they're going to throw her flower garlands and praise uh, for the job that she's doing as head of the Ministry of Truth. Okay. Uh, and then this morning she was retweeting that uh, over Easter she was away before venturing into conspiracy land for the next Radio 4 podcast. So it's such a terrible life for her. But, but Patrick, what is the myth of the BBC? Well, uh, well, I was going to comment on Mary in the spring. But, uh, yeah, do that. Well, look, she, she downplays the Twitter files and said that somehow this is some nefarious operation by Elon Musk. Uh, to you know, discredit uh, legitimate disinformation experts or whatever. That's the story. 
That's the story, but it undermines her whole job and her whole position and this fake uh, new industry of fact checkers and disinformation experts, total hacks, complete frauds, the whole, the whole section of this part of the media that's been carved out for these people is a complete fraud. And everyone's starting to see that now. And so I'm waiting, when are these people going to jump ship? Uh, they, they have no credibility left. I mean, in, unless you want to, you think that holding an esteemed position uh, within the Reich's uh, uh, media hierarchy or, you know, or Stalin's Russia or something uh, is, is something to aspire to as a career person. Su Suleiman Ahmed is a, a really good independent journalist. He wrote an amazing thread on Twitter. I'm sorry we don't have it up on screen, mm -hmm. but he broke down Mariana Springs' article point by point, this exhaustive thread. And it's an amazing forensic um, uh, example of how you can deconstruct these uh, so-called uh, disinformation experts as complete propaganda hacks. Mm. And she is absolutely that. So anyway. Oh, okay. Well, as we mentioned on, on uh, Wednesday's program, of course, uh, Musk also announced that they were going to change the, the little tagline that goes to the BBC from uh, government-funded uh, media outlet to uh, public-funded media outlet. Uh, but tell us about the myth of uh, a public service. Well, we've had this conversation many times uh, on, on the UK column over the years, and this is a good book here by Tom Mills, uh, the BBC, the myth of a public service, and goes into the detail of how the BBC is actually under the thumb of the state. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. And so they are an expression of establishment, and they have always been that, uh, and that's their whole role, a period. So that's uh, an important thing. The other thing is NPR and PBS, I think, have jumped ship from Twitter out of protest because of this hassle of being called state-funded media, even though they're actually funded by the state. Um, in protest, they're leaving Twitter. They made this big, big announcement. And um, I don't see anybody shedding any serious tears. I don't know where they're going to go after this, maybe Mastodon or something like that. Who knows? Well, okay. Let's just uh, remind everybody that it's only uh, a week or so until uh, the UK government will be testing the emergency alert system across the UK. This is their new way to alert us when our lives may be in danger because we've got to pump the fear out. Uh, that's on the 23rd of April, 2023. Uh, well, now we know what time it's at. It's going to be at 3 p.m. Um, so there you go. Uh, this is what they had to say. Emergency alerts will transform the UK's warning and informing capability by working with mobile broadcasting technology. It will provide a means to get urgent messages quickly to nearly 90% of mobile phones in a defined area where there's a risk to life and provide clear instructions about how best to respond. So they're saying that uh, this will go out on 4G and 5G mobile phones uh, with sound and vibration. Now, the last time we reported this, we played the little video clip that let everybody hear what it's going to sound like so you don't have to actually have it enabled on your phone. Uh, and uh, so they're going to test this, as we say, at 3 p.m. on uh, Sunday, the 23rd of April. Uh, following successful pilots in East Su Suffolk and Reading, uh, this new emergency alert system will see people receive a message on the home screen of their mobile phone, along with a sound and vibration for up to 10 seconds. It'll be very loud. It's not something you can you can disable or anything like oh, that. Oh, it is something you can disable. So we're just about to explain okay. how you disable it. So here we go. So remember, it's uh, if you've got a phone running iOS 14, sorry, we'll just go back, uh, iOS 14.5 or later, uh, or, uh, uh, um, sorry. Anyway, you can opt out of emergency alerts, but you must keep them uh, switched on for your own, or sorry, you should keep them switched on for your own safety. To opt out, uh, you can search set settings for emergency alerts. Uh, you can turn off severe alerts and extreme alerts. So there's two, two levels of alert. 
but uh, I, you need to have a more modern phone, basically, for it to, to, to work at all. So if, if you've got an old Nokia banana, dog whistle to the Neo-Luddites, right? Yes. They're cool. They're not going to be bothered by this. It could trigger you. What if you're driving and this thing goes, If you we have this in Arizona for dust storms. It goes, eh, eh, and the phone shakes. Yes. It's not pleasant. No. Now, if you're easily triggered or you have anxiety issues, this is going to trigger you. Why are they going to do, what could this possibly be for, Mike? How did the British survive all these centuries without the emergency alert system? Well, you know, what Patrick, the be? thing is, if, if, if Putin launches his nuclear barrage, we've got to be told to get under the tables. I mean, how else are they going to tell us? Do you think it's possible the government may start doing drills with this? Well, this is the first one. This the, technology? The once, yes. Mock nuclear drills? Do you think that's a possibility? I think it very much is. Uh, we also have extreme heat. That happens two days a year. Yes. And everyone freaks out in the tabloids, say it's a Armageddon, right? Uh, and can do that. And what about cold, extreme cold, one day a year? And rain. And don't forget, there'll be more variants of COVID and, and uh, coronavirus and more, more uh, avian flu and all kinds of stuff. Who, who knows? Perfect for a new variant. Yes. A new variant has been spotted in your area, the Kent variant or the Arturus. So the, I can see there's so and, much anyway, potential for this, Mike. This is really exciting. You should, we, we should be getting excited about this. And total social engineering in real time. Everyone gets triggered at the same time. Yes. This is fantastic. Let's uh, move on to another form of social engineering then, just to finish off. Uh, and, uh, well, Bud Light. Yeah, that's right, Bud Light. So uh, when they signed this, uh, this, this bloke who believes or pretends to be a woman, uh, their share prices have dropped. They've lost $6 billion off the value of their company. And Wall Street experts are saying that's nothing compared to the drop that's coming on Monday, possibly another dip for, for Anheuser-Busch. That's the biggest brewery in America. They've gone full trans on this. They put this uh, this guy's picture on the beer can as well. Yes. It's been a huge backlash. Everyone's boycotting uh, Anheuser-Busch products. And look at this. Go woke, go broke. That's what they say, right? Now it's a, that became a hashtag on, uh, on Twitter very, very quickly. Yes, and, uh, Dylan Mulvaney. Yes, what were they possibly thinking? So Nike's having well, it, the same issue. Exactly, because it's not just Bud Light. It's a whole whole raft of co companies have chosen this particular person to uh, to promote their product. So they got men wearing women's bras, and so there's a uh, women are having this this campaign, burn the bra. I think it's ni against Nike. So it's, the whole thing's backfiring on all these companies. So this is amazing news. I think this is something to celebrate because. Isn't it ridiculous? They can't find a decent woman to, to be the face of these companies, so they have to go find a guy who's pretending to be a woman? I mean, what kind of times are we living in? This is just complete Sodom and Gomorrah. It is indeed. And on that note, we'll leave it for today. Thank you very much to Vanessa and Patrick for joining us. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra. Um, but otherwise, uh, have a good weekend, and we'll see you at 1 p.m. on Monday as usual. See you then. Bye-bye.